the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history welcome back specifically to the 2023 bungacast reading club where as you'll know by now we're focusing on three big themes uh, over the course of the year freedom legitimacy and then globalization so thank you to everyone uh, who's been with us this year who was with us last year and hello if you're new to us um if you're new to us and haven't listened to any of the previous episodes uh, of this year i'm going to recap a little bit what we discussed but of course they're there for you to to listen to so, um, as you'll know, the first four episodes of this year, this year's reading club, are dedicated to Martin Hagland and his 2019 book, This Life, Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom. Um, so here we're going to be discussing specifically chapters six and the conclusion. Um, George and Phil, uh, just briefly, what did you what did you think of uh, the the last chapters of this book? Yeah, I mean, he wraps it all up in the in the conclusion, which I think is the most expansive bit of the, the whole book the, um, the final substantive chapter on democratic socialism one of the most most political i guess he's he is shifting gears to a certain extent he's moving from the the more the more kind of tightly argued philosophical slow building to to what the implications are and that's yeah. often where the rubber hits the road in these in these sorts of books so but <laughs> yeah. um no i did i did uh, continue to enjoy enjoy reading it and uh, yeah look forward to discussing it phil yeah i um i certainly continue to enjoy it and i suppose i'm still kind of um deeply admiring both of uh Hagland's arguments and also the just the you know the ambition of the book um but i did feel like it was more slack in terms of some of the kind of moves that are made and the way in which certain um aspects of the argument are integrated i guess and i had some you know i think there's a ultimately a unforgivable concession to American globalism for want of a better word, but we'll get <laughs> on to that. We've already spoken about it before recording and I'm sure we'll come to it in due course. So yeah. Uh no, very good. I I, I echo those sentiments. Um there's bits where I just want to kind of stand up and applaud at the end of a section or at the end of a chapter. It's it's um did impressive. You, but um, did you actually I do didn't. that while you were reading I didn't it, but I well that would be we, I mean in your room. If I just did, if I did that, there'd be a kind of. You could of have nice... recorded a little TikTok and sent it to Martin Hagland <laughs> right. while. No, no, I was going to say, I was going to say, doing it myself would be nicely non-performative. If I do it for social media, that's really cringe. Um, more cringe, actually, than just the cringeworthiness of applauding a book by myself in the in my room. Anyway, um, just to let you know. Uh, this isn't the last time we're going to discuss this book because um, each uh, episode, each section of this reading club of the three parts um, gets kind of four months allocated to it. So uh, next month we is going to be dedicated to wider reflections on the themes of this, trying to maybe operationalize some of the politics or draw out what the politics of this book are. Um, and we're going to do that through yeah, discussion. Yeah, don't say operationalize. Of, yeah, well, it's it's done now. You could have um, said synthesize. I think that would have been mm, just about a liable. Uh, I, I want to take the, these ideas and make them kind of more concrete, you know, make them, put them to work. 
Let's put it that way, which would have been a better way to say it right from the start. Anyway, um, I'll, I'll remember that for next time. Uh, but also, we're going to be discussing uh, criticisms that the book has received and its wider reception. And uh, we will be publicizing what specifically um, will be involved in terms of the reading um, very shortly after this episode comes out. Just finally, before we get kind of properly started, uh, local reading clubs, um, just announcing this again, if you're new to us, uh, there are local reading clubs across. Uh, across uh, North America, Europe, and Australasia in various different cities. Sometimes it's just one or two people and they're looking for more people to join. Um, So do get in touch if you'd like to set one up or join one wherever you are. And also get in touch and let us know how it's going. If you've got a group and it's going really well and you're enjoying it, or you have some questions or criticisms about how this whole process is working, um, do let us know info at bunkcast.com or through uh, messages on the Patreon platform. Okay, just to recap, where what we've done up till now um, in this book because it's it's hefty. There's lots of big philosophical arguments and lots of uh, political critiques made as well, um, drawing on a whole different range of authors. So it might be good to just uh, just restate how we've got to where we are. So in the first episode, we discussed selections from chapters one and three. Across those chapters, Hagelin starts with the question of death, mourning, and faith as part of an argument about the fragility and finiteness of life, something which demands secular faith. He goes on to contrast religious and secular confessions before concluding uh, on God's irresponsibility. So uh, here I quote, only someone who is committed, who is bound by something other than herself, can be responsible. Only someone who is committed can care, and only someone who is finite can be committed which is uh, effectively a kind of central statement about what secular faith is. Uh, our discussion centered on two main questions. Firstly, we debated Hegelin's understanding of religion and specifically his focus on Stoicism and Buddhism, two ideas which I think we'll return to in this discussion today. Secondly, we examined Hegelin's argument against political theology, that is, the argument that secular faith has a normative and existential deficit, um, you know, that basically without God, society is lacking something. We asked how we might deal uh, in turn with disenchantment and whether Hegelin's secular faith might be the answer. Just a quick note about secular, uh, excuse me, about political theology before we go on. That's a a theme, a notion that we discussed in last year's reading club at at the very beginning of 2022 with a discussion of Carl Schmitt. Thank you, George, of Carl Schmitt's political theology. Um, and we didn't, we, we, it, our discussion centered around the idea of sovereignty. So we didn't dedicate too much to explicating out what political theology means. But I think it's worth um, referring to that episode and referring to that work um, if you want to ex- understand a little bit more deeply political theology. So in episode two, um, which covered chapters four and five, those chapters, Hagelin distinguishes natural freedom from his main concern, spiritual freedom. He then turns to social critique by centering his discussion on the economy of time, arguing that how we structure our economy of time is central to the question of freedom. So through an engagement with Marx's Grundrisse, Hegeland argues that for us to be truly free, we need to adopt a different measure of value, not one based on socially necessary labor time, but on what he calls socially available free time. And so in this episode, you really get, uh, not just the episode, in, the, in, the, in this chapter, chapter five, you get a sense of what Hegeland is driving at, what, what his politics are, and what the purpose of all this elaboration around questions of mortality um, actually are about. We, uh, in that episode, we dealt with some listener questions from the first episode, and then we went on to debate the role that identity plays for Hegeland. 
Are we determined in our existential identity, or is it chosen or created through action? We also focused on Hegelian duty of Marx and the centrality of the question of time. Now, this is episode three, we're covering chapters six and the conclusion. So, as I said, chapter five, and as we discussed in that episode, chapter five is maybe the central chapter, tying together the philosophical argument around mortality, finiteness, and fragility to a more political case about the organization of society and how we don't really truly freely dispose of the time of our lives. Chapter six tries to extend this argument um, by taking it onto more explicitly political terrain. And he does this by contrasting social democracy, uh, or at least what Hegelin calls social democracy, which is broadly speaking any politics that is concerned with redistribution. And he contrasts that with his own preferred politics, which is democratic socialism. That is, uh, that which concerns itself with the revaluation of value. And in order to do so, he goes through, I guess, what can, can be categorized as various visions of utopia and of emancipation. And so these take in both radical and liberal um, thinkers, indeed, even some bright liberal thinkers um, in the case of Hayek. So just to recap, he goes through initially um, a, a relatively recent argument about utopia um, advanced by Frederick Jameson and his idea of the universal army. Uh, he takes in Moshe Postona's time, labor and social do domination, uh, in which time emerges as central to uh, Marxian critique. Hegland also t discusses Thomas Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century, which is an account focused primarily on inequality and redistribution. And he also looks at the cat classics of liberal thought at Mill, Rawls, Keynes, and Hayek. And Hayek in particular uh, is interesting, and we're going to come to discuss this, because um, Friedrich Hayek is uh, seen as someone who is on the far opposite end of the spectrum to Marx. But actually seems to, or emerges in Hegelin's discussion as someone who's relatively close to him, because Hayek sees the intrinsic link between economic life and spiritual freedom. Uh, and that, and for that reason, it's quite interesting. Um, well, Hegelin's discussion is interesting, and hopefully our discussion of that will be interesting too. Um, and finally, chapter six concludes by looking at Adorno's uh, utopian vision, which is a, a, a negative utopia, a utopia of no suffering and no death of just pure being. And we're going to come to this as well. The conclusion, I think as George and, and, and Phil have already hinted at in their comments about it, um, is a little bit more meandering. Um, and it's try, well, I guess Hegelin tries to tie it together um, through making the protagonist Martin Luther King Jr., who serves as both a positive and a negative case, an emblem of a misguided religious faith and of a limited focus on political equality, as well as an inspiring example of secular faith and as someone who radicalized in his final years, turning not just to economic e equality, but to the revaluation of value. Um, and so this chapter sees Hegelin going through uh, readings of Kant, of Hegel, and particularly Hegel's secularized understanding of the Christian trinity. And finally, um, this will sound pathetic saying it, but uh, finally, Naomi Klein on climate change and capitalism. Um, so anyway, at, at the very end of the book, we find Martin Hegelin returning to his case against political theology. Here I quote, the basic premise of political theology has always been that we the people cannot ultimately own the responsibility for our life together. And that's from pre page 388 on the penultimate page. Um, so that actually caught me by a little bit by surprise, him coming back to political theology. And then it made me realize, yeah, actually, that's kind of what the book is about. <laughs> um, but, you know, feel free to, free, 
feel free to contest that listener or indeed George and Phil. Um, so we just have one listener question, which I was going to highlight, which I think is interesting. Um, and it's not in just interesting because they say that uh, they find my point that I had made correct. But Stone says, I find Alex's point about the market and karma viable. This is specifically the idea that um, the market as a, as a kind of impersonal and rational form of the redistribution or rather distribution of, um, of, of gains and losses um, has a sort of um, it's sort of syllogistic with regard to karma, which also is this kind of system which apportions um, portions punishment and, and uh, reward. Um, Stone says, I, th I think that this point is viable in that they both supposedly have access to absolute truth if you take Hayek's ideas seriously. Um, now, if that sounds opaque, we're going to maybe come back to this towards the end because um, the final bits of the conclusion have a kind of deep reading of Hegel and particularly of his phenomenology of spirit. And maybe we can comment um, on Stone's point um, towards the end. Right. Um, let's get let's get to it. I've spoken too much. I'm going to set up the first question, uh, which concerns this notion of um, utopia and how do we make freedom real. So Hegelin sets up socially necessary labor time and socially available free time as opposites. But importantly, um, these are opposites that form a unity. You can't have one without the other. You can't just have a life of socially available free time. Um, there needs to be some socially necessary labor time because even if everything was automatically provided for us, we would still need to um, democratically decide on on what is kind of necessary uh, labor and what is uh, the additional stuff. Um, so one utopian egalitarian vision that seems to unite necessity and freedom is provided by Frederick Jameson's An American Utopia, which um, came out as an essay and then a book with responses a couple of years ago published by Verso. Uh, and in that vision, work, um, Jameson proposes, would be organized by a universal army. So here I quote, when we are done with our required hours of labor under the supervision of the army, we are free to do whatever we want, right? So you have this kind of seemingly kind of compelled, organized, structured labor, and then this totally free, free time. Hagelin's critical of this vision, seeming to suggest that the freedom of our free time would not be genuinely free, and that we would be prey to maybe listless boredom or free-floating anxiety. So how does Hagelin propose we exercise freedom in our free time? Um, how, do we, how do we make our free time truly free and not too free? I've said free too many times, but mm. I, I hope you see what I'm getting at. Well, I think his point, which is <clears throat> which is correct, is that part of that freedom resides in necessity or in recognizing that the things that you have to do are not sort of there to be abolished, but they're the precondition of having that freedom in the first place. So, the problem that he would have with someone like um, like Jameson is that the coercion required to do the to do the necessary stuff um, that's uh, intimately related to the fact that you wouldn't recognize your true self or or your kind of collective decision to to undertake this day, but instead it's something which is externally imposed on you. So therefore, your free time, um, you don't see how related that is to necessity. So you're never going to be um, in a position to kind of experience that free time in anything other than a way that, that kind of um, obscures the relationship between necessity and freedom i think that's one of his or at least that's how i understood his um his point the idea that you can't you can't like you can't eliminate 
than, it, than what's necessary because then you're also eliminating the precondition for freedom at the same time. Yeah, I don't disagree with that, George. I think there's something else. I mean, it's a little bit like, um, you know, teachers or parents who notice that a, a, a that a child is, or an adolescent especially, is kind of misbehaving, getting up to no good in their free time and argues, well, you know, they need some structure in their lives. And I think that's basically what Hagland is saying, that, you know, you can have um, work shared out more equally, um, and especially the, the kind of unpleasant stuff. Uh, and therefore have a more egalitarian society and a more cooperative, collaborative one. Um, but if our free time is complete, is, is treated as a, as a mere sort of opposite to, to the realm of necessity and one in which um, there's no real determinate content or structure to it, and it's basically deinstitutionalized, that then will be getting up to no good. <laughs> now, it doesn't mean in this in a moralistic sense about, you know, well, people will just be, you know, doing drugs and vandalism. Um, but basically that the exercise of freedom requires two things, I think. So one is practical identity. So a commitment to, to being, for example, a violinist or uh, a mother or um a guy who likes to help out kind of, um, you know, doing gardening in public areas to make it, the city look pretty. And that's what they decide to kind of be really good at. Um, and that it needs social institutions to kind of ground those in place and to make them, I guess, collective and to provide recognition for um, those practices that you undertake. And so I think his his argument against Jameson is that, um you need you still need institutions. So you can't just make the world of work of necessary labor uh, subject to kind of institutionalization, but that the that the that the that realm of freedom of socially available free time also has to be kind of institutionalized. It has to be um, governed by a sense of internal necessity, you know, freely chosen individuals deciding what they want to do, but a sense of commitment to what you see yourself as and a commitment to doing it well, or, you know, and however um, one conceive, conceives of well. And I think that would be the way of avoiding the sort of listless boredom or whatever of, um, you know, of, of this kind of empty freedom, which, uh, or empty free time, which exists only as the flip side of the coin to um, a life of drudgery. Yeah, no, I think that's it. It, it, and it's useful for that, or I think he he does hit the nail on the head because it's it then makes you think about like what the conditions of free labor would be, or or grasp the point that if you have that kind of you have to do things under the supervision of the army, then that's not a very you know that's not a very free life. There has to be other conditions generating the the unity or or the uh, freedom in both aspects of, of of your life, and you know supervision by the army is not generally uh, that for most people i guess it maybe it could be if your practical identity was guy who does stuff because the army is supervising him but i don't think that's uh, i don't <laughs> yeah, think that would yeah. work even on hugging yeah, terms yeah i don't know if he allows choosing on freedom i don't know if that's that's allowed under the terms of freedom but um yeah <laughs> Moving on, though, um, one of the ways that we supposedly gain freedom and particularly socially available free time is by technological progress. I mean, that's kind of what capitalism sort of promises us, um, that technological advance means that things are done more efficiently, more productively. And not only do we have more stuff, but that it liberates us from that drudgery. 
except not. Um, so we've discussed growth and degrowth a lot in this podcast um, and answered questions from listeners as to, for example, whether a future society would still have growth. And this is a question that Martin Hegland broaches quite directly. Um, so I want to know what we make of Hegland's answer to this question. Namely, um, as he puts it, that we are committed to increasing the wealth of our society, but we no longer measure social wealth in terms of capital growth. Instead, under democratic socialism, it is measured in terms of actual production of goods and our socially available free time. Um, first of all, do we, um, how, how do we understand that statement around growth? Yeah, this is, um, I mean, I was fascinated by this. So I don't think, I mean, I don't think Hagland is the first to kind of bounce off Keynes's famous essay from the Great Depression, where he makes the claim, you know, that um, 100 years from then, there would be no, you know, there would be no drudgery, um, and that technology and economic growth would advance so far, that we'd essentially be liberated into, into the leisure society. Um, and so, you know, Hagland is absolutely right um, that it's the last hundred years is a very, in as much as Keynes is concerned, at least, it's a very effective proof of Marx's point um, about the interdependence of capital and labor. So whereas, um, you know, in the Keynesian view, the kind of the idea was that capital could, um, capital is kind of substitutable for labor over the long run. And so then, you know, you kind of just erode labor through greater and greater use of technology to substitute for labor until eventually, you know, no one has to work anymore. Rather, Marx's point is that capital recreates labor because it can only value itself through, um, through value. It can only value itself ultimately through labor time and therefore it requires labor. Um, and that is what you know that is the precondition of its existence is reproducing wage labor and the class of proletarians necessary to its functioning. So I mean, you know, as far as that's concerned, it's an excellent kind of both illustrator and vin illustrator of Marx's argument and vindication of the of the of the claim. Um, on this point, that wealth could be measured, you know. A wealth could be more directly measured in terms of actual production of goods and socially available free time. I'm not, you know, this is a bit more tricky, I think, because what you're talking about is, I suppose, you know, you're talking about a society that's transitioning from capitalism to socialism, and I suppose onwards to communism. And it's this kind of latter transition that is never, seems to me, kind of... Um, that's never, at least convincingly, to my mind, laid out in Hagelin's work, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not convinced that you could actually, you know, just offer kind of figures about actual output of particular goods and you know, kind of increase in aggregate leisure time, without also, um, to some degree, being dependent on abstract measures of value still inherited from capitalism maybe it's the limit of my imagination but um you know i find the these kinds of discussions are not only complex and you know but murky and they also presuppose all sorts of things that i don't think can be really decided abstractly or theoretically in advance they would only really be unfolded practically institutionally and politically in the course of um you know in the aftermath 
of and the you know long aftermath of a proletarian revolution um which it's, is itself such mm, a distant prospect it's one of those things that it, it like it's impossible to know beforehand but like looking backwards from that point it will have been obvious what the things were that led from one thing to another if if that makes if that makes any sort of Mm. um sense the qualitative change like i think you can sort of see there is a you know there's a, a quantitative increase in freedom as um kind of socially available free time increases and then there's a qualitative change in what freedom means moving from socialism to communism um where you you, you either do or you don't collectively recognize your kind of shared conditions of freedom in, in how you're producing things i mean one thing i did want to say about his treatment of Keynes that was not something that i was expecting to get out of this was he kind of convinced me that accelerationists are essentially Keynesian in in that the this idea that we have to have at least another hundred years where we have to pretend that fair is foul and foul is fair and all that sort of thing and it's like yeah Keynes thinks this and the accelerationists then say well we can do better than that how about 50 years how about like yeah, i mean you're, really abso- you're absolutely right but it, it's it's a debt that's more explicitly acknowledged you know i mean more it is it is fairly explicitly acknowledged in in some you know accelerationist writings that there's references to to kind of keynes's vision um and again it's, yeah i probably it, just read them too quickly to, to pick that up <laughs> no no i mean it's one of these things where kind of you know you go back and you kind of connect the dots and you're like well yeah actually that was that was always there and it's always a depoliticized sort of vision right where um you accelerate technological development and good things will emerge from it and social struggle is sort of absent from this picture but specifically but specifically about about social struggle though because i think you know both have made points about you know how much you can really understand or envision in what communism would be like and you know hegland says it would be this but how how do we know blah 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 i want to turn more to kind of the critique of what of what actually exists and and Hagelin's argument seems to be a political one, which is that we cannot just keep pushing for more growth. Um, that that would that does not liberate us in any way. I think that's actually very important. Um, and again, it's kind of you know the last hundred years, um, you know, because that is the Keynesian promise, right? At least writing in the nineteen thirties, that a hundred years of growth, we'll all be living. Though he didn't use the word communism, but you know, we would all be kind of um, lotus eating. Uh, a lotus eating yeah, leisure class basically know? yeah yeah exactly kind of it's the bloomsbury group kind of writ large you know the bohemian aristocratic life of leisure and um pleasure and education so yeah well let me just finish here. the point okay, it's to on, say i think so it proves growth isn't sufficient right so and that it is about the you know necessary but insufficient and probably that we were we've already long passed the point at which the technical capacity for socialism exists and so really it is the relations of production to focus on rather than the forces of production yeah. admit it you know they, they admit it they exist in the dialectic at least you know and that's in the classic marxian schema but um it is the relations of production or the forces of production that have to be addressed yeah, I mean, that was essentially going to be my point, but I would be a bit more critical of Hagland for not really hammering home this kind of central insight almost that, you know, the the the, con- the conditions for freedom already exist today, like un- indisputably. And that's so anything which requires or premises 
um, its vision of freedom on, on growth or future changes, technological or others, there's a kind of um, a disavowal of what of what real freedom is and, and what is up for, for grabs today. I think, you know, I've made this point before. This is the, the problem with kind of tech utopianism and, and various other sorts of um, accounts of the future of, of freedom that the conditions are here and now available to realize Hagland's view of freedom, for example, but you know, is it is it that's a political point, I guess, more than a a conceptual one, because it 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 means that you have to focus, you know, entirely on on just you know the conditions or otherwise um, of of the agents that could bring that about. So I think, yeah, yeah. Sorry, that's a bit of a roundabout way of putting of, of kind of agreeing with Phil, and then just saying like, yeah, growth isn't sufficient, but it's also irrelevant because we you know we have those we have what we need now i mean it, it does leave me a little bit uh places me in a, an ambivalent situation personally um in terms of my my own politics and vision of things because of i would be instinctively kind of developmentalist um and it's particularly an absence of an agent um for you know the kind of revaluation of value um but at the same time you know it's not like capitalists are pursuing development especially um, wholeheartedly and and indeed they can't um only as a only as a kind of afterthought or, yeah, or, that time or is secondary over. consequence so you're speaking you know. from the vantage point of the global south you see you have to accept like that the questions are those of advanced capitalist societies alex well only chairman she will will rescue us i suppose is is the is the conclusion um it's not going to give us more free time but maybe a bit more development i don't know anyway we're getting sidetracked um this is by the way i'm going to put a pin in this because we're going to come back to this in episode 4 when we try to um not operationalize but uh, how do we put it um work through or work out what the politics are that would ensue from make the make the concepts work i think make you, the concept put the concepts put to work exactly yes, that when was we go, it. when we put these concepts to work in nice. a kind of forced uh, army of concepts <laughs> right their, exactly their work and then we're cons- having their time off conscription universal conscription of the concepts anyway um, moving on. Um, so I've already made reference to Martin Hagelin's reading of Hayek, um, and particularly this kind of point at which Hayek and Marx seem to almost meet. Um, so Hayek emphasizes this question of practical knowledge, um, as in his argument against uh, central planning. I quote, the, u- the unique information of which beneficial use might only be made if the decisions depending on it are left to him or are made with his active cooperation. Um, effective economic agents only they really know how you know stuff really works and uh, and they have to make use of that knowledge right you can't impose it from top down so this is all part of Hayek's case against central planning and in favor of markets um, on the basis that no actor could be in, in possession of total abstract knowledge about the needs and resources across society um, and to mediate all those kind of atomized bits of practical knowledge uh, the only thing that would work is the price system because um, only the price system could provide a rational economic order, leveraging each individual's practical knowledge. So how does Hegelin use Hayek's argument, but turn it against him, that is, in favor of democratic socialism? You might have to answer your own question here, Alex. Okay, so so let me... So let me, let me um... I can I can contribute on Hayek, but on this thing, I think it's best if you do it. 
Okay, so so I mean, I think the the, the argument I think is that he he goes with Hayek as far as he takes it as he takes him against an argument against an authoritarian society in which you know there's undemocratic central planning and someone assumes that they know the needs of the, the needs and resources available in society. Um, but what I think Hayek ignores um, and what he does is that he um, firstly he naturalizes production. I think he treats it as a given. So he only kind of questions the different forms of distribution, whether it's a central authority or whether it's the market. Um, and I think in in doing that, he he assumes that everyone is, you know, in an, in the market, each out there pursuing their self interest. Um, and you know, that's that's kind of part of human nature. And their people use their knowledge and are pursuing their self interest, and it all works together in the market because we kind of communicate via price signals. Um, but in fact. Um, what, it's not just like all of us are equivalent economic actors. In fact, what we're doing is firstly pursuing surplus value and only the owners of capital are pursuing the accumulation of, of, uh, of surplus value, accumulating capital. Um, and the market may be rational and efficient in producing surplus value, but not in producing the things we need. So he kind of goes with Hayek a certain um, you know, step of the way, but then he kind of goes, yeah, okay. But if, if Hayek's claim is that the market is rational and efficient in producing the stuff we need, no, actually it just is rational and efficient in producing surplus value. The producing things we need is, is, um, an afterthought it's secondary, you know, it's, it's a, it's a side effect. Um, and in terms of, there's a question of, of ownership here too, because the vision that Hayek proposes is one in which we're all in some ways equivalent economic actors, but um, that isn't the case. So Hayek opposes the dictatorship of the proletariat or what he understands of the dictatorship of the proletariat, particularly under kind of Stalinist um, system in which there's central planning and not democratic planning. Um, but Hayek is blind to the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. So we're not all making these consequential economic decisions. Only some people are. Only the owners of capital really are. Yeah, I'm a, so I was a bit, le I mean, I think he's right to see these kinds of um, ghostly flashes of um, congruence or similarity, I suppose, between Hayek and Marx. I'm not so convinced, you know, kind of how he tries to land the critique against Hayek, because it's not exactly that, you know, it's not exactly that the market produces things we don't need. But the overall point about, you know, the overall point is that it's, we're not in control and that Marx makes the case about how that lack of control is ultimately um, sabotages capitalism itself, um, which is, you know, so I think the, the point they both see um, or both Hayek and Marx see how capitalism has evolved kind of as a, this um, spontaneous kind of social order behind the backs of men. Uh, but, that they're the way they you know valorize it completely differently. Um, uh, Hayek seeing it as this magnificent kind of natural, natural wonder, uh, which should fill us with awe and reverence, and Marx seeing it as um, as something which shouldn't be seen as a natural wonder, but as a human product, and that can be reorganized in such a way that it can be made you know to align with conscious human purpose. Uh, that said, I don't. Uh, 
I mean, I think it, you know, I think Haglin goes too much with Hayek's misconceptions about the issue. And Hayek, so when Hayek is writing, you know, the idea of planning or the notion that every kind of economic decision would be kind of uh, focused into a centralized directorate and that more and more of the economy would be absorbed into some centralized bureaucratic decision making structure, that it would kind of swallow the entirety of economic life. And that is the. So, you know that is the kind of the ultimate horizon of what planning is um i'm not sure that you know i don't think that corresponds to the marxist vision i think it's certainly kind of an idea of planning that would have been current in hayek in hayek's time and hayek is obviously he's swiping against a much larger swathe of figures than just um than just Marx and Marxists. If anything, I mean, maybe you could even make the case, I think, you know, when he's riding the road to serfdom, what is his real target is kind of technocratic, technocratic um, planners, kind of Fabian socialists more than, um, more than Marxists. But that aside, I mean, the point is, I think that it's not, you know, the idea of Marx's notion is putting the proletariat in power. And that that is the precondition for overcoming capitalism. It's not about finding a kind of a specific set of economic policies that happen to be less market friendly and are made in a kind of, you know, um, are made in some single center and then ramified or cascaded throughout all of society. Um, You know, I don't think that planning in the Marxist um, account would be much would be significantly different um than the kind of planning that we have now, at least in terms of the you know way in which planning occurs in enormous corporations and with uh, you know government directed ministries and so on, the difference would be that it would be under the political rule of the working class rather than under the political rule of capitalists and their um allies and lackeys so I think that i th- i just i suppose I thought the discussion was um a bit more confused than it needed to be. No, that's fair enough. Um, that's fair enough. I, I, I think it, it, the reason he engages, I mean, this is my reading of it, that he engages with Hayek is to a certain extent to uh, co-opt um, a little bit of what Hayek argues and turn it against himself, as I said, but also to preempt certain arguments around, or I guess arguments that pro-capitalist people would make against his case about freedom, right? That his case for freedom is basically inoperable, that no one would go to work under democratic no, no, socialism. I, I think he's right. I mean, he's yeah. right to target Hayek. Um, and it's, you know, I, I think even more so, you know, if we're right, if the premise of our pod is right, then neoliberalism, you know, is effectively receding into the past if it's not already over, then all the more reason to engage with what the, you know, what the kind of the emancipatory promise of neoliberalism was. And that is, I think, ultimately best symbolized by Hayek. So I think Hagland, you know, there is kind of, particularly in the light of the 20th century and all of its catastrophic failures. You know, you have to, I think it's vital to engage with seriously and understand the neoliberal kind of promise and the neoliberal critique. Um, and so Hagland is right to, you know, is right to target Hayek, no doubt about that. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, so I think absolutely. Um, but it's also a way, again, of sort of preempting the the kind of capitalist arguments against him. And one of the questions um, is precisely this idea of, of what we do with our freedom. So Hayek tries to push our discussion of freedom, uh, especially the positive conception of freedom, which Hegelin dis- distinguishes from a purely negative liberty or, or that idea of non-interference. Um, 
and he tries to push that towards the question of free time. So um, a lot of contemporary discussion today, I think, centers around what people would do with this free time. And a lot of the kind of traditional, you know, socialism versus capitalism discussions, um, which are always tedious. But anyway, um, they always come down to a little bit about, you know, whether people would still work under socialism. If you have your needs provided for you, what under what basis and why would you contribute at all? Um, and today specifically, though, um, I, I think that discussion perhaps is not so prominent, um, but the in part because the discussion has kind of moved on. So a lot of the discussion around freedom today is around the concept of a universal basic income. Um, which, as we've discussed many times on this podcast, would still be a social system driven by the pursuit of profit, um, in which value is determined by socially necessary labor time. But it's a society which is much more, presumably, um, according to its proponents, more egalitarian, um, in which we all get a stipend, so we don't need to work. Um, but as a consequence, critics have seized on the inevitable idleness that will ensue. Um, that basically we'd all become sort of masturbatory layabouts living off the UBI. No one would actually do the work that's necessary because we would get our, you know, whatever, 10 grand um, a year, which would be enough to kind of get by on. Um, so Hagelin tries to kind of, I think, r respond to this or preempt this. Um, when What do we think of his response, in fact? Because he um, raises the issue that... Um, that effectively under capitalism, uh, the idea is that no one would work without the threat of not surviving or alternatively the promise of profit. Um, Hagelin's re response is that, um, you know, we can't just have the single ought of you ought to work, but we need the double ought of spiritual freedom, um, that we need to be able to question that initial ought. Why should we um, have to work in the way that we have to work under capitalism? Do we, do we find his case convincing? Yeah, I mean, to the extent that the that necessity um, aspect of our lives is not removed by UBI, it can be it can be hidden or it can be kind of um, less uh, less obvious, but it still exists. And I think he is correct that any true understanding of freedom does require um, that the I guess, not so much that necessity is freely chosen, but that it's understood as um, as an aspect of of what makes up freedom so you can't you know it's it, i guess it is kind of bad faith to, to to want to not not reproduce your material conditions of life at all to not reflect um that or, or to not understand that that's necessary um but he doesn't kind of take that approach he instead says well if you were entirely to remove that that kind of um understanding of necessity you also remove the conditions um which allow you to reflect on the ends of your life because mm. that's that's his whole understanding of what freedom is. So yeah, I guess he I think he is I think he is correct there. Obviously, we've given UBI probably a bit of a kicking in a, on a few episodes of the podcast, but I mean, there are the way that you were just describing it there Alex, I was like maybe I've been a bit too too hasty. It would be good to not, you know, to not have to work and just get a stipend and, you know, and chill out, but I well, think I mean, um, I, I think the, the, the UBI it's not freedom UBI is is interesting, and it, I think it's interesting that it has um, emerged as such a central question today. You know, to a certain extent across the political spectrum, but particularly on the left, um, and that it does prompt a discussion about freedom and what do we do with our free time, and what 
um, constrains our freedom, what structures our freedom. Um, and, you know, again, we've had this discussion quite a lot and very across various episodes of this podcast, but I think we'll continue to do so. And I, I only raise it not because Hagland necessarily dedicates any time really at all to discussing it more just that it seems to um, frame his discussion in a certain way or, or allow us to sort of apply his concepts to to a concrete sort of issue. Um, I, I mean, I, just as, as an aside, I think it, one thing that Hagelin misses um, in stating that basically the compulsions that we're subjected to is either um, to avoid um, death, effectively survival, or profit. Um, and that, you know, this is the reason that under capitalism, people work, um, either the promise of profit or the, the threat of um, non-existence, the threat of starvation, um, is in fact um, not a kind of equal um, carrot and stick that applies to all of us, but these are if class divisions themselves. Um, you know, notably, they always say, you know, the kind of bankers won't work if they are not paid these bonuses. Um, whereas, you know, if you're if, if uh, poor people are given um, greater welfare, get given welfare checks, they're not going to work then. Um, because they'll be lazy, right? And this is this is kind of a, a, a cliche, but it, it remains true that effectively what you have is profit for some and survival for the many. Um, that, uh, you know, the reason that rich people go to work is because of the pursuit of profit, um, whereas the only reason that poor people go to work is not the pursuit of profit. If they could make profit, they wouldn't then work. It, they must be um, given the the whip, only the whip, because it always comes down to that, I think. Um, and I think that itself is revealing that this um, dichotomy of profit survival is, is, a, is actually a class division. And what it then furthermore reveals is that in the final analysis, the defense of capitalism ends up being merely the defense of the whip. Um, not of that it provides people with goods or with freedom, but that it is able to discipline. You know, that's kind of the the, the yeah. ultimate argument, um, and where capitalism reveals itself to no to no to not be a <laughs> or the advocates of capitalism not to be advocates of freedom anymore at all. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that you know the fallback onto those kinds of arguments is deeply, um, you know, like it's uh, deep, high, or highly revealing as you as you say. Um, you don't want to be too. Um too hasty in your analysis though alex when you were when you were talking there it did make me think of like what 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 the real danger is potentially is if all the capitalists were to go on strike and, and if they were to stop working not um due to the kind of um i guess the the ubi that they already have well it's not universal it's not basic but it is a large mm. amount of income <laughs> from from capital um yeah i mean this is not what Anne rand um looks at in atlas shrugged but it just made me think like this is there is if there's a moral panic around like people wouldn't work during ubi uh, like if there were ubi it there doesn't seem to be a moral panic what happens if all the capitalists was to stop working because they've already got enough um got enough income anyway just made me uh made me think of that that book that i haven't I haven't I mean, I read. Think, I've listened to part of the audiobook of, but it was very There is, it was very there bad. is. Um, but I mean, we do live in the era of capital strike, right? I mean, that's why we have an asset kind of inflated economy. Precisely the lack of productive outlets. Um, and that produces the kind of, uh, you know, I think, I mean, this, you know, we've talked about this a great deal, but um, the the kind of uh, the culture and the politics that correspond to that kind of um, stagnant, uh, 
bubble prone global economy that we have um you know i think that does kind of correspond to the scenario kind of you were describing george i mean that is the you know yeah, that is the society that, of the capital strike in a way right um so that and that is the world the world we live in and i mean you know but also i mean for most rich people obviously the experience isn't profit but going to work for a, you know a wage which is probably out of all proportion to you know the utility of the work that they do and or you know like or it'll be um kind of uh you know work that isn't value producing but that they attach to the you know but which is kind of in their own eyes is part of what makes them important socially as overseers yeah. or directors or you know kind of um essentially you know playing some kind of disciplinarian role well, I mean, but, that, but and but the bourgeoisie works evermore, as you, as you're saying, you know, but longer yeah. hours and and a cult of work at a time when it's would be pretty unnecessary. They could just live off um, their their capital um, and the interest, and they no longer want to be aristocrats. You know, exactly. like unlike the 19th yeah. century bourgeoisie that aspired to the kind of the lotus lotus eating aristocracy, that kind of life of um, genteel leisure that's long gone. Which is interesting, right? I think, and I, I think this is, I'm glad you kind of raised this because it plays directly into this discussion about, about Hegland, right? Because for them, you know, it would be seen as uh, life would lack kind of meaning and structure if that need to work was gone. Yeah. Um, and on one level, that's problematic because it, it kind of shows that what you have no other interests, no other kind of uh, things you would like to develop culturally as skills, as capacities, other than just going into your desk job you know like that's that's kind of sad um on the other hand um and I, I mean and that might be also to do with the fact that it lends a feeling of authority you know of work of having high-powered jobs which yeah. um in, in the absence of traditional forms of, of of authority or state status that the bourgeoisie used to have a kind of semi-aristocratic kind of vision they need that from work but on the other hand it does show that of course that even without needing to work that some people like to work and why wouldn't that be the case for everyone under socialism um you know under in Hagelin's vision that we would be free to determine what the ends of our lives would be and maybe we determine that yes actually i do want to you know continue working even though uh, theoretically i'm taken care of right because um there's a there's collective you know that effectively that would deal with the free rider problem um i think that already exposes well, yeah that. Of course, i mean there wouldn't be a free rider problem if you like if you were working because you wanted to and someone else wasn't working because they didn't want to like you wouldn't perceive it in the same way i don't yeah, think. I think that's right i think that's right it would try quite qualitatively transforms the nature of people's relations to each other i also wanted to make a point you know about kind of ubi i mean this is something which i've i can't you know it's not original to me though i can't remember at what you know um where i saw it but somebody made the case like you know the um part of the reason music used to be good was because property was relatively cheap and you had more generous welfare schemes, yeah. um, you know, and so you could have like, you know, um, you know, kind of layabout students or uh, working class, you know, kind of young working class um, guys and girls could kind of rent property cheaply in major cities, you know, and they could do that, have a, you know, have a crappy job on the side while they put their band together, did lots of local gigs and eventually made it, you know, made it big. And those days are long gone. So I wanted, you know, if UBI could, um, you know, could help kind of, uh, could help erode some of the necessity for work and help create more of the basis perhaps for, um, 
you know, for cultural life along similar lines, you know, I, that doesn't seem to be any bad thing. So and, you're you're basically saying UBI could be good because it would make music as good as it was when I was younger, which um, I no, think is what, what we was for. No, because I'm talking before I was born, more like in the 70s and 60s. Okay, because um, so I, I remember music nostalgic. being... Music was better when I, you know, back in the day, wasn't it? And you know, but anyway, anyway, uh, I, not, I don't think point. we can go really back to music point, yeah. being better. I don't think we can go back to the heights of eighties music. That is true, right? But at least it could be better than what it is now. Anyway, so okay, I, that, that that's one point for the housing theory of everything. We discuss in an upcoming episode with Matt Uber uh, the the uh, energy theory of everything. But this is a, a plus point for the housing theory of everything. Anyway. Um, we're getting off track. Just one last point, I guess, on this broad uh, theme of why would anyone work under socialism? Um, Hagland sees uh, or tries to leverage the idea of one's practical identity um, and saying that this is what anchors or would anchor your free time. At the same time, you have this notion of your social role, which anchors the realm of necessity. So basically, um, the work that needs to be done, um, you know, that's where your social role matters um you being a doctor but your practical identity as someone who you know plays the flute and tries to be really good at being the flute um and being a flautist or indeed being a mother or being a blah 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 um is that that's where that applies um so it seems that you know practical identity and social role are how we distinguish freedom from necessity does that i i, I was left in two minds about this i wasn't sure if i quite understood the weight of it yeah. the import of it what he's getting at with it I I agree. I was left slightly, you know, kind of, um, I suppose in my, in my most skeptical mode, I'd say it seems to be reproducing the kind of the very division between public and private man, you know, that is at the mm. very root of Marx's critique in the origin is um, on, on the Jewish question. Um, I suppose in a more generous frame of mind, I could say there are aspects perhaps that Agland is saying that um, pass me by but it seemed to me to be kind of reproducing the problem that he's trying to escape essentially yeah very good I, that's another one which i'll put a pin in and we'll come back to um in maybe in the final episode or later um at some time hopefully with martin hagland himself One, I think, important issue and which pertains to the object of Hagelin's whole sort of work in this book is this idea of the critique of religion, which is where Hagelin starts and it's where he ends. And it's something which maybe seems somehow extraneous or unnecessary in today's societies, which are remain um, very secular, even if they seem to be desecularizing at some pace. At any rate, um, you know, the first three chapters, as we know, were dedicated to this idea of secular faith um, and don't directly tie into the argument for democratic socialism. The arguments contained in those chapters seem to be abstract philosophical cases for secularism and against religion, rather than being a historically specific critique of a form of social organization, that is capitalism, and of making a political case for a new form of society. But then Hagelin concludes chapter six by referring to Marx's contribution to the critique of Hegel's philosophy of right, in which Marx argues, quote, that the critique of religion is the premise of all critique. My understanding of what Hegel is doing here is going even further. 
I wonder if you agree with me. So Hegelin doesn't just hold to the idea that uh, religion critique, the critique of religion, is the premise of all social critique, but actually demonstrates that it has to be its active component all the way up and down from the kind of philosophical abstractions down to kind of our political arguments, that kind of the argument against the critique of religion has to be um, kind of threaded throughout our, our, our argument uh, for freedom. I think I think there's something in 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 this. Um, certainly, it makes me think of um, the Todd McGowan book that that we did on yeah. on Hegel. I mean, unsurprisingly, given that he's um, talking about Marx's critique of religion and <clears throat> it's his connection to, I guess you might say, the most Hegelian parts of of Marx's uh, thought. But yeah, this idea that I think there it is the starting point because the but in a in a historically specific way, in that the the critique of religion or the the political starting point that God is not the authority, um, but it's rather us. It's it's we are forced to um, accept this position of of creating laws and you know and doing this collectively. This is the starting point of the modern of the modern age as, as um, I think McGowan really convincingly argues the French revolution means that any, uh, from a secular point of view, any kind of vision of society, which has God as the ultimate authority is just not, it's just not tenable. So there is that, that sense in which the, yeah, I think social or political critique starts with the critique of religion in, in one sense, because it, it recognizes the necessity to put, um, man as the authority um, in society and not and not God. So, yeah, I think that's. I mean, I'm not sure if that's exactly what you were getting at. Well, but that's what, I, yeah, what your question yes, made me think. But but more than that, because the issue is not just a critique of organized religion, because it you know um, doesn't enthrone man um, and sets up God as this ultimate authority, but that um, religion, in a much more kind of reductive understanding, that is the desire for eternity, the desire for infinity. Um, and the kind of stoic escape from pain and earth and the pain that earthly commitments cause is something that is um, much more wide ranging and exists in many different forms well beyond just organized religion and that that needs to be critiqued consistently throughout. Um, so the, the idea being it's not just religion that oppresses us, but uh, there's various forms of thought which are religion-like, effectively. So let me let me just quote one one thing which I think really nails it down or nails down what Hegelin's project is here. Both capitalism and religion prevent us from recognizing in practice that our own lives, our only lives, are taken away from us when our time is taken away from us. So our, um, there's a lot of taken away from us, but you know our our lives are taken away from us when our time is taken away from us, and so that I think involves that kind of together um, critiques both like religious alienation, um, the ascription to God um, of our human powers, um, and all, but also under capitalism, the, 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 the handing over of our time to the market and the, and the, the handing over of what should be a decision that we make, what are our ends, what do we want to do with the time of our lives and give it over to something which is handed down to us um, that is unquestionable. That is to say that the pursuit of profit and that that um, underscores and underwrites anything that is possible in society, that you need to have the production of, of surplus value. Um, yeah. And so those are two forms of, of alienation. And I think Hegelin's project is to kind of unify them and to show that actually they're sort of the same thing. It's not just one 
what the critique of one is the basis for the critique of the other that you start with critique and religion and then you proceed on to capitalism but somehow yeah. that that there's a spirit of the critique which has to be operative throughout all our criticism all of our um criticism whether it's of organized religion whether it's of capitalism or anything in between yeah it's a bit more than that though i mean it's the point is like it is um it's the very again it's kind of um the very uh, the conceit of Marxism, you know, is the Feuerbachian one, that um, we are enslaved to our own creations, you know, um, except that it's not just the the image, you know, or in, I mean, in some ways, I suppose it's it's more, you know, it's more subtle and pushes further. Well, it does. It pushes further than the Feuerbachian critique because it's not just that we're enthralled to imaginary beings, but enthralled to our own creations in ways our own kind of the society that we've created in a way that is um, uh, much more subtle and insidious than simply, you know, worshipping an imaginary supernatural deity. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's, that's, yeah, I mean, and that kind of, that, that process of alienating our own characteristics or our own creations and then them coming to stand over us. I mean, God is, is one or in the Christian tradition, God is one example of this, but, I was, yeah, I mean, think about recent events, i.e., like COVID. There is a there is a a fetish there as well. There's the, you know, projecting onto things which are are non-human, human characteristics, and then those things coming to dominate us. So I think that, you know, <clears throat> that is the the model of of critique on on the Marxist um, in the Marxist tradition, and and so there's there's you know that's the um, the sort of dis uh that's as far as critique i guess can can get you is to start to get to the <laughs> the secret behind these these illusions or these these kind of misidentifications obviously practical changes are required to change the conditions that produce these things but the you know critique can help um demystify these things to a certain extent at least well i mean you say that but it's interesting that heglin goes further at at a certain point it's just a brief bit but he makes the point that philosophy is not just interpreting the world, but is changing it. Um, that philosophy, to a certain extent, is action. It's not the sum total of action, obviously, um, far from it, but that it it is a part of, of action. So he takes issue, in fact, with, with uh, Thesis 11. So anyway, I think that's interesting. Maybe worth coming back to um, at a future point in time um, about what, what Hegland aims to do with the book and what, what one can do with philosophy, I guess. Um, I, one one last point, just kind of on this theme about um, about you know Hegel's case against political theology, which, as I've said, I think is ultimately you realize like what the what the argument of the book is. It's an argument against political theology, and I always kind of think it's a useful exercise in you know when you take a book of theory to try to reduce it down to a couple of exhortations. I know this is kind of can be a little bit silly, but to basically say, okay, what is the book shouting at you to to do, right? And and I think in this case, in the case of this life, uh, it seems to be saying we can do whatever we want to do. There's nothing, there's nothing that's kind of that has to be the way it, it is. Um, we can do what we want. Um, commit to things. Believe in things. Get be ready to be heard again. <laughs> um, and I th- I think that's it. I don't know, but maybe you have maybe you disagree or maybe you want to propose some other exhortations. Um, that that so it's a, is, is, is it's like a post. It's a post breakup book. It's like you 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 might want to retreat, but in fact, to have freedom, you need to 
you need to take a, a risk. You need to well, commit. You need to live your your life, and um, there will be suffering. There will be that, pain. Is that not argu- our argument at the end of the end of history? That okay, we've had our lotus eating end of history period where we've abandoned any great dreams, but we can we can uh, we're allowed to to dream again. We're allowed to you know allow ourselves to be hurt and to have hope and expectation once again. Um, Alex, might, Alex, well, that's wow. that's well. You're making my heart flutter here, dude. I just, I just want to, just want to be myself, you know. Shed all that cynical weight that you carry around, the accumulated irony and sarcasm and everything that just that okay, weighs you down. And uh, yeah. Anyway, okay. So um, two last issues to deal with, uh, and and they're kind of big ones. Let's see how. Let's see if we can manage to find kind of credible answers to this. So one concerns the images of utopia. I think there's quite an interesting discussion of Adorno at the end of chapter six. Um, and Adorno acts as a bit of foil uh, of a foil for Hegland. Adorno says we can't have images of utopia because utopia for him is a purely negative thing. It's the absence of bad things in the here and now, specifically the absence even of worldly suffering. So you know what the answer is here, obviously. Hegland goes, hey, Adorno, you're basically holding on to religious idea of a longing for redemption from the condition of finitude. Your idea of utopia is a sort of what could be called a kind of Freudian death drive or some um, uh, desire for a universal wholeness relieved of um, relieved of you know suffering and pain and all the rest of it. Yeah, um, I think Hagelin misses a trick here. I mean, I hate I hate being put in the position of having to defend Adorno, but <laughs> I think he misses a trick here in as much as I think, and this is something we touched upon in earlier episodes in discussing Hagland, that uh, I think accepting his argument, you know, about the um, about finitude and about the responsibility that comes with it means that it will generate these, you know, kind of flights of retreat, you know. So the mm-hmm. if that, you know, by its very nature, the you know the kind of the the rigor and the demands of that vision, you know, which is a kind of an imposing one to some degree. It has, obviously, it has the great promise of freedom, but it also has, it comes with its costs, right? You say, as George said, you know, there will be suffering. And at the end, you know, you have to accept the, the as the price of freedom is death, ultimately. Um, and that means that inevitably it will constantly recreate these um refuges from that and i think that is i think that is what um uh, adorno is getting at you know he's saying that it will always be will always be shadowed by this kind of um by this refuge by this kind of psychic refuge so i think um i think perhaps hagland is being a bit ungenerous in the way in which he casts adorno's argument okay very yeah. good go on george but there is still yeah i mean that's that's right the price of freedom is is death but hagland also i think it, you know to his credit he defends suffering and even boredom and there's a couple of good good things that he says about and i think he's no he's i know right, he does but, but what to, i'm like, saying is but that's exactly what i'm saying it's precisely because hagland does see that but what he underestimates is because that vision is so demanding um that inevitably you know it will come kind of attached to it structurally attached to that will be will be these uh refuges right people will inevitably kind of and you know and at the certain points of your life um you know people will take refuge and they will fly you know they will kind of uh, recoil from their freedom 
And I think that's what Adorno is getting at in this idea that utopia is a purely negative thing. We will always be, you know, if you accept Hagelin's argument, then the idea of a, of being relieved of suffering will always be a temptation. Mm-hmm. So I suppose what I'm getting at is like there are worldly temptations that shadow Hagelin's argument just as much as there are kind of temptations that shadow the theological argument, you know, um, lust and pride and, you know, sin, whatever. Um, and I don't think he, I think he underestimates the fact that his argument comes with a structure, you know, kind of a set of temptations that are specific to his secular faith as well. Very good. And one and, of these uh, is this yeah. idea that we could be relieved of suffering in its entirety. I, I don't think it's really being relieved of suffering in its entirety. Maybe that's the ultimate origin. Maybe it's just that, you know, the old existentialist idea that people are scared of freedom. It's the fear of, of the massive weight of responsibility for making your life. And, um, that's, you know, yeah, that's, nobody... that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm, yeah. I think that's what Adorno yeah. is driving at. And I think I think Hagland underestimates it. And this is something that we discussed in the first episode on this book about whether Hagland's vision is too demanding, right? Or perhaps he needs to be at least more explicit about what these pitfalls are, that there are going to be an attempt to avoid responsibility, avoid to flight from commitment, to flight from suffering, and so on. I want to jump, actually, because what I was going to do is talk about um, images of utopia. But actually, because of what you said, Phil, um, in kind of hinting at Adorno, um, you know, that Adorno understands something about these these earthly temptations, effectively, or these temptations to, to flight from responsibility. I'm going to try to tie this into um, this last question I want to discuss about stoicism, because it all it might bring it all together, or hopefully it does. And I'm going to refer back to a footnote we discussed from chapter one, but which is just so central um, that I think it's worth repeating. So um, this, is a re- this is like a page-long footnote. It's on page 395 if you, if you want to look it up. But basically, I'll, I'll quote here. Hegel's critique of Stoicism in the Phenomenology of Spirit, a critique that I develop in the conclusion to this book, is much more powerful than Nietzsche's since it seeks to demonstrate the fundamental incoherence of Stoicism, not merely in terms of psychology, but in terms of the conditions of intelligibility for being a person at all. Unlike Nietzsche, Hegel also seeks to understand the temptation of Stoicism, not in terms of the failure of individual character, but in terms of oppressive social and historical conditions. As Hegel puts it, Stoicism as an authoritative spiritual ideal can only come on the scene during a time of universal fear and servitude. That various forms of Stoicism continue to enjoy the status of supposed spiritual wisdom in our own historical epoch, in everything from advanced philosophy to self-help books, should remind us of how far we are from having achieved an emancipated society. I mean, again, it's brilliant and spot on. <laughs> and and as Hagland himself recognized um, in response to me on Twitter, it was like, yeah, maybe I should have put that in, <laughs> should have put that in the book rather than as as a footnote because it is really good. Um, and yeah, uh, and I think and that- I constantly, I mean, you know, you constantly get these things on on Instagram, right? Um, these shit, you know, these shit heel accounts about kind of with quotes from Seneca and Marcus Aurelius and whatnot. And the very fact that they're popular, you know, it speaks to exactly that. Right. And so the, this temptation of of, of, of uh, stoicism, um, which, you know, we encountered in the early chapters, Hagelin returns to again and tries to develop a little bit further. So let me just um, explain a little bit what he does here and then we can um, discuss how... Um, real we think these things are in the present day. 
So Hegelin returns in the conclusion uh, to Stoicism, elaborating that Stoicism tries to find virtue in letting go of attachments, something we've already seen and discussed plenty. But then he introduces skepticism as well. Skepticism makes the denial of all forms of commitment explicit by arguing against passion. Um, so skepticism is a more kind of maybe self-conscious form of, of Stoicism. Um, it's the truth of Stoicism, as Hegelin puts it. But skepticism itself is self-contradictory because, you know, the skeptic argues passionately in favor of indifference, indifference to anything. Um, and that's obviously contradictory. That ultimately resolves itself into um, hate what Hegel calls unhappy consciousness. And this is all really Hegel's reading of Hegel. So here I'm quoting from page 365 in the conclusion. The unhappy consciousness acknowledges that there can be no absolution from finitude in this life. But it treats our dependence on material support and on the fragile recognition of others as a lamentable condition, which falls short of how our lives ideally should be. So, you know, you get stoicism, which resolves itself into skepticism, which resolves itself ultimately into this unhappy consciousness, which kind of goes, yeah, um, we, we're, we're, get, we're stuck with kind of finite life, but I don't like it very much. And that, that I guess, is, is you know, these, these sorts of escapes. They, they attempt to avoid responsibility, avoid commitment. Um, avoid really believing in belief anymore. Um, and here we might refer actually to, to, the, to the notion of cynicism, which is something that we discussed in the last reading club or last year's reading club in the middle part, particularly our reading of, um, of Zizek. Um, so maybe a, a useful term to, to throw in here. So anyway, we have these kind of three things, stoicism, skepticism, and unhappy consciousness. Can we identify earthly representatives of these um, stances, these attitudes today? It sounds like you might have some people in mind. I won't, you, when I you really say don't, earthly really representatives, don't. do you mean concrete individuals? No, or I mean, institutions, well, I already, or I already, forces, ideas. But I already gave the example, you know, like I think stoicism, I mean, like it's incredible how any self-help, kind, you know, listicle you'll find um, will at some point kind of, um, you know, uh, include Marcus Aurelius's meditations. Or it'll be like the thing that the tech bro kind of in addition to i don't know rich rich dad poor dad or some other crap you know the thing that will give you a bit of kind of um intellectual gravitas will be like uh, you know marcus aurelius's meditations yeah. yeah so i mean there is you know it's just in stoicism i don't think it requires a kind of a specific individual it's just so embedded in contemporary culture and I think, um, again, you know, very much vindicates the old Hegelian insight that it could only exist just as it emerges kind of or come it flowers in in the Roman Empire. It emerges in a time of a particular kind of un, particular conditions of capitalism. That's no, you know, that's no that's entirely yeah. consistent. I mean, I guess it's it's a, they're bywords in some ways for depoliticization, right, for the retreat from the stage of history. Um, the stage yeah, even absolutely. of even of the public right it's a retreat into into private life and and you know there can be obviously wholesome retreats into private life you know you care for your family and learn an instrument and blah 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 um, but I guess these are all forms which are more uh, if not destructive then um, somehow They're more extreme yeah right? more absolute I guess that that's kind of part of the illustration is that you can take these things to their to their kind of conclusion and these are the i guess the ideal types which maybe don't have an earthly 
representative i wonder if you can mix kind of mix and match um if you can be a stoic skeptic or, or whether that is contradictory or not um well i mean i guess yeah. i guess the, i guess the skeptic would be i mean to the most so i i i introduce this by saying that uh, just now by saying that these are all forms of depoliticization or kind of consequences of depoliticization i'm wondering whether we can find political self-consciously political representatives of skepticism stoicism or unhappy consciousness maybe that's a contradiction in terms the only thing i can think of off the top of my head is that skepticism perhaps finds itself in the form of a sort of technocratic centrism right which tries to make it which tries to be passionately indifferent about any political forces and tries to place itself above politics so effectively post politics is it would be would be this form of of skepticism i'm not sure i i mean it's an interesting question i don't know if it's if they find kind of direct political embodiments i think they're more kind of you know cultural dispositions or stances um I'm not sure that you could find a political figure that corresponds to each, but I think if there is one, I think you're probably right. I think it's the longing, you know, it's knobs, right? I think neoliberal order breakdown yeah. syndrome, that is skepticism. It's the longing to to return to a past that's gone in which there is no risk, no kind of uh, the possibility of any passionate engagement such as that of the populists, kind yeah. of it's uh, delicate you know a delicate it's all delicate manipulation and um you know twiddling with uh, little policy policies here and there turning the knobs and little policies and incentives here and there but it's generally like you know kind of don't um just step back you know right and and i guess that's why the cardinal sin of the end of history worth remembering is passion um and it's also why the the terrorist comes to be such a figure of of uh you know of alterity of difference of otherness during the end of history because it is someone who is too passionate right is irrationally passionate is willing to destroy themselves in pursuit of some bizarre aim right and that's the that's the us post-political end of history types would be you know appalled by we can't even conceive of it and that's why it serves as such a perfect enemy um anyway um Unless we have anything to add, I'm just going to move on to the final. Well, only bit here. only on. that maybe the the terrorist is the unhappy consciousness. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, maybe that would be it. You know, the kind of the that finds, or at least the Islamist terrorist, perhaps most specifically. You know, that finds the that seeks um, refuge in in um, in kind of a certain purism or purity that's uh, sanctified by religious scripture yeah yeah i think that's that's nice i like that as well um i'm also trying to think about what to do about various forms of kind of reactionary or authoritarian politics which clearly mobilize passions seem to have commitments but which are obviously uh in no way um vehicles for freedom um you know there might be like kind of apocalyptic or you know nationalist whatever i don't know uh, what, you you know, did what, a very you yourself did a very good take on this, right? Where you noted the transcendent yeah. appeal of uh, Bolsonaro's kind of bargain with the evangelical churches in Brazil, and this is what explains something very appealing about the about that project. In contrast to the more, I suppose, the skeptic, you know, in this case, Lula would be in the position of the skeptic. 
Yeah, to a certain extent, yeah. And I mean, you know, you're absolutely right in, in uh, you know, get, finding what I was getting at, or at least what, what kind of inspired the question. Um, it's something that I'm working on, and it's something that I've found to be so brilliant in Hegelin because it ties together these the various kind of forms of unbelief and belief or the kind of desire for belief, the desire for something to believe in, but which can only find realization in sort of apocalyptic anti-freedom sorts of politics. Um, so anyway, it's a perplexing thing. I think it will continue to be uh, an increasing feature of our time. So um, something to return to. Maybe to conclude, because I had a couple of other things I wanted to discuss, but I think we'll leave them for next time, this discussion of climate change. So I wanted to ask how we combat climate change while not submitting to political theology. Um, I also wanted to talk about images of utopia and whether there are any concrete images of utopia. What are they and what does that tell us about our society? Um, that's all really interesting, but we can't uh, stay here forever doing this episode. So we're going to leave that for episode four. Um, just to conclude then, I want to... Our time is our time is finite. <laughs> our time is finite. Yeah, I missed the obvious. I missed the obvious point to make shit. Yeah, nice one. Um, what did we make of the book in the end, I guess? Just to, just to conclude, again, we're going to have more time to reflect on it. But, um, you know, now that we've kind of gone through all of us collectively, including you, listener, um, through this, you know, what, what have we found of it? And what have you found of it, listener? Uh, tell us after, um, after you're done listening to us talk about it. So what, are we are we kind of rating it like four no. Sylvia's yeah. out of five? <laughs> How many stars? Or four or five stars? Yeah, or three. I mean, I would. I mean, I I think it's tremendous. Um, even if it's kind of disjointed, I feel kind of in parts. Um, and there is, you know, I think some uh, significant kind of oversights on on Hagelin's part in terms of um, not to say that you know there's more. He needs to be more that he particularly needs to be more comprehensive in terms of the people or arguments that he addresses, but more that he, the logic of his argument opens up positions that he needs to address. But that aside, um, I, you know, kind of, uh, I think that it might be a book which uh, genuine, you know, which is a genuinely uh, puts forward um it's very hard to find, it's very hard to say this without without kind of um simply sounding cliched but that it genuinely kind of proposes it genuinely embeds a kind of a socialist vision of life and politics into contemporary discussion i think which i don't think i've um you know, I don't think I, I can't think of any other book off the top of my head that I've read in recent years that does something like that. Um, and that I think, you know, that is in itself is a tremendous achievement, I think. I think part my response is probably partly having read <clears throat> too, too many or like having read some moral philosophy to the point of, of saturation. And so just feeling a little bit like, I don't know. I, I I see what you're saying, Phil. I can sort of see the the intellectual, like the, the quality of the of the argumentation and the the scope and the ambition being extremely impressive. But it you know it didn't kind of get me. I guess how like reflecting on having you know finished reading it and now discussing it, um you know a couple of weeks later, it hasn't kind of energized me to the same extent that it sounds like it maybe has you it hasn't like it hasn't got me fired up I don't and I'm not quite sure why because in reading it I kind of flew through it and I thought 
you know the way it was building to the to this conclusion and <clears throat> going through a lot of kind of um really interesting and hegelian points where which i was like yeah this, this is this is brilliant but it didn't i don't know i'm 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 struggling to put my finger on what exactly I, holds me back I, I from sort of for, of buying it for everyone that i know and saying like you know this yeah. is this is it's not no, I, do, yeah. I do know what you mean so and i i didn't say that it energized me and i do think it's that kind of shift from so i think that you know the case is made very convincingly that um capitalism squanders our finite time you know no doubt about that but to pivot from that to making a political case against capitalism that is you know that is a trickier thing to pull off and yeah. i'm not it's that kind of um it's that knight's move i guess it's kind of a knight's move the equivalent of a knight's move in chess it's kind of jumping and moving sideways and that yeah. is a very difficult thing to pull off and i'm not can that is the part which i think is kind of the most complicated structurally in a way in terms of the intellectual structure of the argument and perhaps also the least convincing but nonetheless i mean you know kind of um impressive for its what it's attempting to do and its ambition so i i agree with that i i'm i can't wait to start to put this book to work um to try to um tease out certain you know the ideas put those concepts to work as i already had you know said um and to you know use it firstly to tie various things together which seemed to me apparent about today about on the one hand the cynical ideology um our lack of belief in belief um are the kind of growing the growing seeming desecularization of society you know whether it's belief in astrology all the way to kind of apocalyptic evangelicism or whatever um while also um you know adapting to this very strange situation um socially historically that we're in without sloughing off everything that we've learned. So, you know, there's a return to Hegel and to Marx. It remains kind of modernist or, you know, remains kind of faithful to the questions that modernity throws up. Um, so it hasn't kind of, you know, been, uh, goes for that option of being so open-minded that your brain falls out, right? That you kind of go, yeah, we have to discard everything that we've ever learned and thought about right go even go before the enlightenment it kind of returns to the essential um enlightenment and radical enlightenment concerns while also being able to cut through a lot of the political baggage that has been accumulated which has become associated with marxism for example um or with left-wing politics and is able to really cut through by this emphasis on the question of the time of our lives now what do you do with that? And isn't there a risk of political indifferentism as a consequence that you kind of forget about all these other political questions? That face us and just go, yeah, but we need to focus on this socially uh, available. I think, I mean, free time. you know, there, there would be, I mean, I think there is an immediate, you know, I, I thought for a while and Hagland has only, um, has only reinforced me in this view that, you know, uh, a popular kind of political project, at least in Britain, if not elsewhere, could easily make um, carving out leisure time a basis of its platform yeah. and, you know, organize around it as the basis of its popular appeal. So, say, making the case for more public holidays, um, making the case for containing containing work and making the case for, um, you know, kind of uh, ensuring that overtime is also... Um, 
is also kind of uh, regulated in particular ways that make it more kind of monetary, um, monetarily rewarded. You know, I think that would be that would be a that would definitely be a component. I think of we, a popular radical well, politics sh- today. I don't I don't agree with you, but we should we should come back to this in the next episode um, because. I need some time to to come up with. Yeah, with, I, I think uh, I think this is this is the point. Great. I think we'll just leave leave the listener uh, with this with this question. Um, where, where what does that? What are the politics ultimately of um, of this life? What does it suggest? How do we make use of the time of our lives? Anyway, so that's one for next time. Um, as you can tell, there'll be plenty more to discuss. Even though we're done going through the book itself, um, we're going to discuss some of these questions that um, I've already hinted at about climate change, about ideas of utopia, um, about how we put these concepts to work, and also about the criticisms and receptions that that this book has had, which will hopefully help um, clarify that discussion. So we look forward to seeing you again in a month's time. We hope you've enjoyed and have taken a lot from our discussions and going through the book. Um, as we've said at the very beginning of this of, of the 2023 Reading Club, we've taken a slightly different approach going through one you know, big work a bit more slowly, trying to tease out all the different themes and maybe go through a little bit more carefully the content of the book. I certainly, just to speak for myself, I've taken a huge amount from this and I hope you feel likewise. Either way, do let us know. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for subscribing. That's it from us for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye.